Hi, Chris Valentin here. Thanks for tuning in to my podcast. I'm so excited about my new show, Cultural Catalyst, where we help you to learn how to live fully alive, co-labor with God, and change the world. You can watch it weekly on my YouTube channel or listen to it here. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, everybody. Well, welcome to Cultural Catalyst, where we help you learn how to live fully alive, co-labor with God, and change the world. And I'm your host, Chris Valentin, and I have Jamie... Uh, Winship with us today. And Jamie, we met some years ago in D.C. And Jamie is uh, has a very distinguished career as a law enforcement officer. He uh, has an M.A. in English, and he's developed a method called Identity Method, which we were just offline talking about just a few minutes ago. And you've helped uh, to bring a lot of peaceful solutions to very high conflict areas. And we've we're in the middle of very high conflict time uh, when we're we were actually airing this the day after the shooting there in Texas, um, where nineteen at least nineteen people were killed, and um, I think I think I think more than that actually. And so, before we really jump into what you do, tell us a little bit about who you are and a little bit about your background. Yeah, thanks. It's great. It's really good to be with you. Yeah, and I'm really sorry about the situation in Texas. That's just uh, it's, it's, sad um, for the families and all. Um, I, I'm from Washington, D.C., grew up grew up in the D.C. metropolitan area, um, and uh, my whole life, since probably age 14, wanted to be a police officer, so that's that was my goal in life. Uh, and then in um, 11th grade, going into my senior year, I had an accident in a wrestling tournament and had to have uh, emergency surgery. And during that, as I was going into that, I was terrified that I would never pass a police physical, that the injury would prevent me. So my whole life was ruined as far as I was concerned. And when I came out of the surgery the next day, um, the doctor told me that I would never play sports again. And he didn't want to make a prediction about a police physical, but he said that for sure, you're not doing that again. So I was pretty devastated and horrified and bitter and angry and, um, didn't re- my view of God was he was a good person to blame for injuries just like this. So wow. it's pretty hostile. And this physical therapist um, who worked in the hospital that she came to work with me on the injury, she's the first person that really um, portrayed Jesus to me in a way that made sense. And I, I was so bitter, though, I would just cuss her out every single day, all day long until she would leave. And I did it day after day. And she would, as she's walking out of the room, she would just look back at me and smile and say, well, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> and she would come back the next day like nothing had happened, nothing had occurred. And, uh, and so even, even then at that age of 17, I realized whatever this woman was, she was more than just a physical therapist, that, there was some, that she was, her identity was greater than her vocation is how I say it now. Wow. Because I knew a lot of mental uh, um, health professionals and physical therapy, she was trying to heal me on the inside. And she kept talking to me about anger and bitterness and about how Jesus was the one that would take away my anger, that my body would heal, but my spirit wouldn't without Christ. And so I never responded to her in any positive way, but she's the one that uh, really was the first model of what I thought Jesus might be like. And so I prayed after I was released from the hospital, that um, I would could become a police officer like she was a nurse. That's the only way I knew how to pray about it. 
And uh, I've never found her ever again. I've tried for a long time, had my law enforcement buddies try and track her down. Never, we've never found her. So I'll have to thank her one day in heaven. But um, yeah, so because of her, when I did get into the police department later in my life, um, I had become deeply grounded in Jesus. Um, and then so um, met my Jew- Jewish believing wife in college. And when I graduated from the police academy, we got married and started into the police department um, and on into um being interviewed in, in by the government because of what what I was doing in the police department and challenged to do it overseas. And so we left the U.S. in 1990 and spent about the next 26 years overseas. Now you were, um, okay, came back so, in 2016. So you finally did become a police officer. I did, and, yes. And, and, and a believer, right? How, how old were you That's when correct. you became a believer? was 18 so right after that right after that injury and all the craziness with that with that lady loving you and you like giving her some hate while she was giving you some love that that sort of led you to jesus that all all of that and then you and then how old were you when you became a police officer 23 whoa you were young but you know I, yeah. I think you know one of the reasons why you're on this call with me is because you were a very unique police officer in that you were bringing what we often call spiritual intelligence or the you know the the holy spirit's ministry you were bringing that into the police work with you and you were right. you were solving some crimes and reconciling people and doing some like extraordinary stuff and that that's kind of like you you started to tell that story can you can you tell just a piece of that story? Yeah. So when I, yeah. So when I, you know, when I made it through probation and I, and I made it on my own, got out on my own and where I worked on my own or sometimes with my partner, but um, very quickly I realized that um, it, it was interesting that there was a difference between law enforcement and serving and protecting. And I didn't want to be a law enforcer. I wanted to be a server and protector and the system didn't seem to really honor it or be built that way. So um, I, I, I started asking God, I didn't know how to do it different than what I was trained and there. I didn't know anywhere to go. Like I didn't know, where do you go to learn how to be a, 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 a spirit filled police officer? I didn't have any idea how to learn that. So I was just reading the Bible and trying to figure out what those folks were doing when they didn't know what to do which was prayer and inquiring of the Lord. But then my question was, how much does God know about police work? (laughs) And then how fast can he answer? Come on. Because we needed like real time right now answers. And I do, you have to meditate. Do you have to light candles? Like what do you have to do to get (laughs) God to speak? That's so good. And, um, and so I just carried a notebook around with me and we'd be in these scenarios and I would just ask God, is there a way you can tell me what to do in this situation? Because we our training doesn't cover this. And what we're going to do is not going to work. It's never worked, but we're going to do the same thing again. So is there a way you can communicate to me in such a way that I can, I can um, come up with new ideas, new strategies without getting sued or fired? Yeah. Because in our department, we weren't allowed to proselytize, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I just started writing down things thoughts they were pretty clear 
and feelings, impressions in my body, or like cops used to say, trust your gut. Yeah. But this was very distinct. I learned to really not trust my gut, but trust Christ, trust the spirit. And so then I, so then the next part was just to do it. So I could like write it down. The next part was okay, now do it. So obedience is hearing and responding. It's not just hearing, right? It's hearing right. and responding. So on just on cases, I started trying it. And, you know, like we were, we were working gang violence. And, um, and so I would ask God, like, we've been working gang violence for many years in the police department with no real result. So what would, what would you do if you were dealing with this gang? And I would have these ideas like take the gang leader home for the weekend. And then, <laughs> right, exactly and free, let, your, you know, let him right? spend the night at your house or the weekend at your house. And, I'd, and, I, and I would be like, that's the craziest, not even smart idea I've ever heard. But then as I read the scriptures, that's how everyone responded to God. Every time he gave them an idea or let them, it was, they were always ex- explaining to God why that was a bad idea. Why they, exactly. And so I was like, wow, this is biblical that I'm saying this is a crazy idea. And so I started to realize when the Lord speaks... It doesn't make sense at first, but as you step into it, it becomes brilliant. And so I, you know, I took that guy home and he stayed with us for the weekend and he came to faith and then he went back into the gang and he brought all the transformation what a wild into story. the gang. Yeah, which was like what Jesus did with the Samaritan woman or the demoniac when he sends, lets them go back into their people. And so the more we did that, you know, of course, it gained notoriety, but the more confident I became in the God who speaks. That's what I called God. He's the God who speaks. He's different than an idol who doesn't speak. He's the God who speaks, and he knows police work really well. He, he really understands probable cause and all that. And so we would just step it up. We would ask him more and more at, in higher and higher risk level scenarios and so I, I made detective. I was officer of the year, um, all the while doing things, you know, that the police department actually frowned upon. So that's that's how I developed that reputation. That's crazy. Did you ever use that same spiritual intelligence or Holy Spirit connection outside of law enforcement? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So then I had this in my fifth year, I I got called by a guy from the State Department and he wanted to interview me. So I went to meet with him. And at this time, I was 27, 27 years old. And he had all my casework for five years. And he said, how are you doing this? We know police departments don't train people how to do this. Where are you coming up with the strategies? And he was, the thing that was good, and I tell people all the time, young people especially, is like, your fruit is how they know you. You can give a talk on prayer and all that, but it's got to be results that work on Monday morning. Um, And so he was flipping through five years of casework and court proceedings going, how did you get this guy to turn himself in? How did you find this kid who was abducted? And how did you stop the car? How did you know to look in the trunk? Like, how do you know how to do these things? And I said to him, because I I had a hard time explaining it back then, but was um, I told him, you're not going to like my strategy. And he said, I don't care. He was an operations guy, you know, career operations guy for the State Department. And I said, well pick out a case and he picks out this case of me and my partner broke this big um, Asian gambling ring. And he said, how did you do that? The FBI had been trying five years to get in there and they couldn't do it. And you're two street uniform guys and you did it. 
And I said, well, we prayed a lot about it. We figured out who we figured who the wife of the lead guy was. We got her to meet with us at a McDonald's and we led her to Christ. And uh, in the McDonald's and and when she and then we taught her to hear God. And when she when we asked God about the gambling, God told her the spirit told her that it was ruining her people. And so she went and got all the gambling ledgers, which is almost impossible to get. And she brought them to us and we took down the whole the whole thing. And I so I told that to the operations guy and he said, you you led her to Christ in a McDonald's. And then God told her to turn in the books. And I said, that's exactly right. And he said, yeah, I don't I don't like that. I don't understand that. But he said, but it obviously works. So then his question was, can you do this overseas in in um you know in high conflict zones and i said what's the difference what's the di- what would be the difference is it harder over there are the people different no that was like the mentality i said if they're breathing if they're human this works and so then he he gave me a hypothetical and then he gave me a real scenario and he said we don't know what to do in this scenario and we have career operatives can you tell us what you would do now think and, and do it practice have, give us an idea. So I, I prayed right there with them. And then I said, this is what I would do. And he said, you're hired. Wow. And so that's why I left the police department was because of the invitation really by God. It was like, I, it was like, I was kind of like Elijah, you know, you train, you learn that the ravens come and feed you and you can drink from the brook. But when the brook dries up, it's because now you're going to expand your skill and offer it to more and more people. So I knew the Lord was inviting us, my wife and I, into the Islamic world with with and and to go into that world uh, and serve and protect. Um, so, and so, so it was a huge honor, with, a huge offer. So we, that's with, why we left and we went to work in the Muslim world. You started working. So do, with we did exactly security. the same thing. You started working with Homeland Security. Were you working with Homeland no, no, Security? No, 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 no. Um, we actually, the way it worked out, it was interesting. My suggestion to, to the state department was to do what Moses did. That's what I told him. Let's do what Moses did. Moses got the enemy to employ him, train him and finance him. Like, why don't we do that? And the operations guy was like, how in the world would you do that? And I said, well, look at, like, look at the story of Moses. It's a case study in how to do it. And so what we ended up doing was getting the Islamic governments to hire us and pay us. And they put us in the places where we felt like the Lord wanted us to be. Because if you go in as a foreign agent or something, it creates immediate conflict. But if you go in hired by, you know, the bad guys, so to speak, no one ever questioned where we came from. They're like, who hired you? You guys hired us. I'm like, oh, okay. And so that gave us a lot of room, even though I did get arrested and put on trial. I still was able to get myself arrested and put on trial. But but normally that really protected us. And it was just interesting. It was like Pharaoh trained Moses to be a nation builder. And then they financed the exodus. And I'm like, why aren't we doing this? Why, why, why is the they, Bible teaching us? Why did they? Uh, so from their perspective, the Islamic governments, what you know, like, what was the win for them? What, what, what was the benefit that you were bringing? That that we were that we were um, that outside governments were trying to destabilize them 
So like maybe like one Islamic nation that's more radical is trying to destabilize, destabilize a moderate nation. And they do it by um, among young men. That's how they do it. So it's like they would start basically gangs of young militants inside student organizations, really, like Taliban is student and, you know, the Iranian it was all a student built movement. So what we would go inside the student movements, my job description was to infiltrate militant Muslim organizations and pacify them. (laughs) And, uh, and, but we did, we didn't do it. We didn't need force. We didn't need coercion or money. We just needed the, the spirit. And so it just took a while to show, demonstrate the result of like, let us get, we'll figure out our own way in once we're in there, we'll figure out who we need to talk, who are the people that we need to influence, and we'll influence them, and they will be the ones that turn the tide in the movement. And so after, in our first project, um, we were able to do that. And so then the foreign government that was trying to destabilize was thrown out by the young Muslims because they had come to faith. Wow. And so they said, we don't, and this is the identity question, we don't need to get our identity from some more radical Islamic group. Our identity comes from Christ. Wow. How many years did you do that? 27. And how? We're still doing it. We're actually still doing it. Oh, you are still, you're still working with that. But now you have your own, um, I'd say, ministry slash business. Right. Uh, in in which I think you do you call it the identity method? Is that true? True. Yeah. The name of our company is Identity Exchange. The identity Exchange. That's right. And right. And so depending on which scenario we're in, we use we call it Identity Exchange. But sometimes because of the situation where our language has to be contextualized, we call it Identity Method. Got right. it. And exactly. So it's like two different branches, actually. So you have, you got kind of like a spiritual branch, Christian branch, and then you have a, a secular branch where you're still using s- spiritual intelligence, but you're just changing I, the language. I, I do exactly the same thing. So, for example, like one week, in one week, just as a couple of weeks ago, on Thursday, um, we did um, an identity exchange project which is a which would be a, like a day of walking people through the false identity into the true identity that's what we do we do it in 60 minutes jesus is very quick at doing this with people he doesn't take months and years like the samaritan woman in these examples zacchaeus like they're they're he's it doesn't take him long to walk them away from the false into the true them because the true is already there. It's the false has buried it and so in so we would spend 90 minutes or an hour in an introduction with like, let's just get rid of the false and get to the true. So in one day we did public school principals. The next day we did seventh graders that were all in trouble at school. And then we did a Green Beret team. Well, when we were offline, and I'm super interested in this right now, because as I just said in my opening comments, you, you know, we just had a shooting an el- at an elementary school, no less. We're talking about little kids. Right. 18-year-old breaks into an elementary school, literally shoots, kills 19 ki- little kids, little kids, not, not, not people you would have a conflict with. And then obviously he's killed and there's a teacher killed and I think there was an officer. And uh, 
And you were you were talking about, and I was asking you, does that that those incidents are you part of the the team that helps to like ward that off uh, preemptively? And you told me of a, a story. Could you could you retell that story? Story. Yeah. Yeah, and so let, so let me just say before I tell that story, real real simple. Because if in in my career we we were sent into all kinds of different countries, so if there was a different reason for violence in every country, we would never find a solution. Our our what we realized was it's the same cause in every place we went. Didn't matter if it was Muslim or or Chinese or or the Balkans or North Africa. It didn't matter. This so always the same cause of violence. So we know from the book of James, all external violence comes from internal conflict. We know that. So, so to do anything external is a waste of time. You got to go internal first to the internal conflict. And what produces internal conflict <clears throat> is a wrong view of yourself, a wrong view of God and a wrong view of others. And that produces fear in people. So, so the fear is the source of all conflict anywhere in the world is produced by fear. So what Jesus is doing is taking away people's fear. Um, once the fear is gone, then you can talk to the true. So this young kid, he, he, he had been in sixth and seventh grade in a middle school, and he was really difficult, and they couldn't control him, and, and um, they suspended him. <clears throat> So, so we went into the middle school, it just happened into this middle school, and we were doing identity exchange with 380 middle schoolers over two days. So we, yes, yeah, sixth and seventh graders, we were walking them. You should hear them talk about their false identity. They know what it is and they know it hurts them. <clears throat> just no one ever talks to them about this stuff. And so anyway, I can tell you how we do that. So over the two days, so when we finished the 380 kids, it was so beautiful and fascinating. Uh, and then they, we start identity clubs and the teachers are in the public school teachers are involved because they wrestle with identity. So at the end of that, the principal comes to me and he said, wow, that was really beautiful. We're super grateful. We've got this one kid we're going to expel him today. He's an eighth grader. And we, we've had him for three years, can't do anything with him. He just did, did something pretty violent. So we, we're going to expel him. But before we do, would you come in and sit with him? We're going to bring him in. Will you come? Because he's a he's going to be a shooter one day. He fits all the profile of a shooter. And he he did. They were right. But what? so what are we going to do with him? You know? And so he comes in and I, I sit next to him and we go through this thing. The principal's like, you know, you know why you're in trouble. The kid will not talk. He hangs his head down. He won't talk. And so I, I asked him if I could put my arm around him. And he said, yeah. And I put my arm around him. And I said, do you, under, do you have an identity that hurts you? And I talked to him for a little while. And he said, he said, my identity is invisible. I'm invisible. Nobody sees me. That's why he does what he does. Because he, think, he, he, he thinks no one's ever seen him his whole life. He's invisible. He's nothing. He's non-being. And I said, if love could talk to you, what do you wish love would say to you? And he said that, that, that love is proud of me. And I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through a process and I'm going to walk you through hearing unconditional love talk to you right now. Okay, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be the principal. It's going to be unconditional love. Is that okay? So we walk him through this process and he gives his false identity to love. Like, 
spiritually. He's, I said, just give it away. What does love do with it? Love takes, love took it away from me and took, took it away. Okay, what does love call you? What does love call you? Maybe, the, maybe your world calls you invisible. What does love call you? And he said, music theory. That was his answer, music theory. And I said, what does that mean? And he goes, that's where I have joy. Wow. Music theory. Wow. And so immediately we start speaking to the true him. The world has only been speaking to the false him, and they treat the false him like that's the real him. It's not the real him. So, so once we heard music theory, I look at the principal, like, do you know anything about this? No. So I call a musician, friend of mine, who's done this process and who was very similar to this kid in middle school. And my musician friend let me, said, let me talk to him. And I put him on the phone. Anyway, we set him up with a, with a music mentor. We got him guitar lessons. Um, and then, then we uh, sent him home and he went home and he told his grandfather, who has, pays no attention to him, um, that he had, that his identity is is music theorist and that he has a mentor in music now. And his grandfather calls the school and said, what happened to this kid? He's never even talked to me before. So the grandfather came in with the kid and it transformed the grandfather My. because we saw such value in the kid. And so the grandfather started calling me twice a week and saying, you know what I did? I bought new clothes for the kid. And I said, great, that's beautiful. And so we paid for the guitar lessons. And we, anyway, the grandfather fell in love with the kid and would tell the kid how great he is and how, what a great musician he is. Anyway, he just finished ninth grade and he's, he's doing <clears throat> really well. Wow. No trouble, n- no discipline problems like that. But he, it's because he, he knows who he is and he doesn't need anyone to tell him who he is. He knows who he is because God is the one who speaks to him. He he hears God in the music. And so as soon as he left the false hymn and moved into the true hymn, that's where Jesus had been calling him ever since he was young. He just didn't know. He didn't know how to follow that voice. It's like Samuel hearing the voice. He doesn't know who it is. Wow. And so being a witness is helping them hear the voice of love that's always been speaking to them. And so when we do this with young Muslim guys, it's exactly the same thing. Wow. Exactly the same process. You wrote a book. We have a, just a few minutes, and I want to make sure because, I mean, the goal of this interview is that, well, obviously that people would find and know Christ, but also that they would know the love of Christ and that you would that's take right. what you're doing put it in seed form to our audience and spread this de-escalation and pro-love identity message to everyone who listens, to everybody's children who listen, to everybody's school whose principal listens, and so on and so forth. So, And you've written a book about this very subject called Living Fearless. And right. can you give us an overview of that book and then uh, give us a plug? Where can they, it's not, it's not out yet, I don't think. But no, it comes out in in June. Yeah, it's living fearless. It's it's about how to live fearlessly in your true identity. How to live fearlessly in your true identity, and really, really, it's a breakdown of the word to abide. When Jesus tells us to abide, what is this? Is what he's saying? Abide in me. Abide in my love. And what does that mean? And so it's 
it's really it's kind of what we use in in training is we have four A's. We call it attention, awareness, enunciation, action. That's the breakdown of to abide. It's paying attention, which leads to awareness, which allows you to hear God, the enunciations of God, um, which leads then to action. And so, um, so when we're training anything from special forces to sixth graders, and what it does, what Jesus is producing is people who are whole and resilient. Wow. And so that's what this book is about. And once you're whole and resilient, you're fearless. You, because the fear has been replaced by the truth of who you really are and who Christ really is. Do you think that uh, we didn't talk about this offline? So you can say I don't know about that, or I, I don't want to comment. But do you think that has anything to do with what's happening with this uh, sexual identity and and transgenderism, uh, transport, you know, all this uh, gender dysphoria and all of that? Do you, do you think there's any relationship between? Because as you're talking, I'm like. Oh, this feels very much like what I think is happening everywhere. I think fatherlessness has created a, an identity crisis internationally. I just wrote a book on fatherlessness, and and and, and it, it really came out of studying the, the, the dysfunctional statistics of our community, of our nation, really, and nations, and, and saying, wow, this traces back to having no daddy or having a dysfunctional or absent father, right? Do you, what do you think? Have you related that those two pieces at all? Right. I think in a healthy in a healthy world, um, kids, boys and girls, both get their identity from the father. Yes. yes. Right. And so when the father's absent, I mean, they can still you can you know there's ways that of course the Lord can work through anything. Yeah, of but course. You get your identity from the father in a sense of nurture from the mother. And so when you break that down, you lose your sense of nurture and safety without the mother and you lose your sense of identity without the father. And so um, when you lose your sense of identity, then you go to find it from what you do, what you have and what people think about you. All of us do this, what you do, what you have and what people think about you. And what happens is you get the counterfeit of real identity, which the counterfeit is radical individualism, which is true identity is 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 like how Jesus hears that he's the son. True identity is received in community from God. True identity is received in community from God. Radical individualism is self-generated and produces immediate conflict. Radical individualism is the satanic counterfeit to true identity. What's stunning is we've done this for many, many years in many countries with many ages but when you do 380 middle schoolers and you work through the false and you ask these kids, let's spend five minutes listening to unconditional love, say who you are. Not one of them has, I've never heard love God or Jesus call anyone anything related to gender. Never. He calls them, my beloved, you are a poet. You are the healer. That's how, That's what they write down on the papers. They never write down gay, straight, any of these words. They're, those are all words that produce separation. When God speaks identity, he speaks identity that brings reconciliation. And I think what, what we as believers have to be careful is we speak also the language of separation. We use those identity words that fragment people. When Jesus, you know, when the Samaritan woman says, why is that you, a Jew, is speaking to me, a Samaritan and a woman, she's using words of separation and teams. 
And Jesus won't respond to that. He says, if you knew who I really was, if you knew my identity and the gift that's being sent to you, you would ask me to serve you and I would. All those, all those team names are gone when Jesus so talks beautiful. because we're ministers of reconciliation. So yeah, I agree with what you're saying. That's why we got to get back to my identity comes from God. Okay, teach me what that sounds like. How do I know how to get that identity and receive it? That is so beautiful. They're going to be able to get your book uh, in June, which is just a, a month month from now. And it looks like your uh, resources are on uh, www.identityexchange.com. Is that true? That's right. Man, That's this right. has been an incredibly interesting conversation. I'd love to have another one, have you on again, and kind of take it from here and talk about some other things. Uh it's good to see you. I hope that we meet again Thank soon. You. I'm in. I, I go. Yeah, to, too. I go to Tennessee quite often, so maybe I'll I'll see you there. Great. And uh, yeah, I pray for you, uh, you and your book to prosper. And I pray this book gets in the hands of so many uh, families and fathers and and leaders and mothers and uh, obviously school principals and police, you know, police chiefs and sheriffs and. We we just need to shift the way that we relate to people who are who are having who are in trouble. Thank you so That's much right. for thank being you. on. Yeah, thank you for having me, Chris. Yeah, Jamie, I love you, man. Thank you. Very Thanks. interesting conversation. God bless you. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelton.com. Have an awesome day.